as you are finding your way back, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got you covered. Don't worry about it. There are some trays behind these sections of chairs that have Bibles on them. If you want to grab one and use it this morning, uh, that would be perfectly okay with us. But if you want to grab your Bible and open it up to the gospel according to Mark in the New Testament, we are in the beginning stages of our look at the life and ministry and impact of the person of Jesus Christ as it's recorded here in the Bible, in particular in the first four books of the New Testament known as the Gospel Accounts. And we're going to be looking at the Gospel according to Mark. And, and for the coming weeks, Mark's going to kind of serve as our skeleton. We talked a little bit last week about these different Gospel Accounts and their similarities and their differences. But for the next several weeks, Mark's going to kind of be our, our home base. And we'll work from Mark and into other Gospel Accounts as we go. But Mark's going to be primary for us. So if you could open up to the book of Mark, we'll begin there this morning. Uh, and as we do, I will pray for us, and then we'll just jump right in. So let's pray together. Father God, thank you uh, again for this privilege that we have to gather together uh, as your people, uh, to hear your word. Uh, we ask that you would do by your Holy Spirit what only you can do, and that you would open up the truth of your word to our hearts, that you would illuminate your truth to us. Uh, you would take hearts that have, have, are dead in sin and trespass, and you would bring them to life by your Holy Spirit. Uh, we ask that you would lead us and guide us into all truth as it, as it has been declared to us by you in your word. Uh, we ask that you would do this for your glory. Uh, in the name of Jesus, amen. If you've got Mark opened up, let's just jump right into it. You'll see that Mark has a busyness about him, so we won't waste any time. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, begins like this. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Straight away, no beating around the bush with Mark. You'll see this as we get going. Mark is a man who's on a mission, and he's a man who, in a sense, is in a hurry. You'll get a little breathless with Mark. So Mark's going to begin to narrate the story and the life and the ministry of Jesus and its impact, and, and he's going to make much of this person, Jesus, that we're looking at, but Unlike Luke and unlike Matthew and in a sense of unlike John, like we saw last week, Mark doesn't have time for the details of Jesus' birth. Doesn't have time for the details of his early life. This is where Mark begins. Here's the beginning of the good news, that gospel message we talked about last week. That good news for Mark starts right here, and that good news is about a person. It's about a person named Jesus. In a sense, Mark 1.1, if you just want to put a little star next to it or a check mark next to it there in your Bible, it is going to be the confessional statement for this entire book, and Mark is going to narrate and unpack this statement throughout the next 16 chapters of his book. He is here to declare to us the good news about a person, Jesus, who is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited King, who is the Son of God. And Mark is going to now tell his story and make sense of that for his readers and make sense of that for us. So let's see how Mark actually begins. Mark wants us to know straight away from verse 2 on that Jesus, this man Jesus, and this man that we're going to meet here in just a moment named John, they were no accident. Jesus was not God's plan B to the nature of sin that has ravaged our hearts and has caused discord in God's creation. Jesus was not God's plan B. God had made a promise to his people long before, and as we'll see, Jesus and this man John that we're going to meet are the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. Look at verse 2. Here's how John starts. I mean, excuse me, here's how Mark starts. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So again, Mark, unlike the rest of the gospel writers, unlike Matthew, unlike Luke, and unlike John, he doesn't begin his story, his narration of the life and ministry of Jesus with a genealogy. He doesn't go backwards to show us how Jesus connects either back to Abraham, how Jesus connects back to Adam, or even like John, waxing philosophical about how Jesus was in the beginning before anything was. Mark starts straight away by taking two Old Testament prophecies about John and about Jesus and bringing them together, showing that they are the fulfillment of God's promises that he's given to his people. Mark here takes prophecies from Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3 and he's using them to show them who this man John that we're about to meet and who this man Jesus really are. John, the messenger here that Isaiah was talking about, and Jesus, this Lord, the way is being prepared for, they're not just a happy accident by God, but they were part of God's promises and God is now fulfilling his promises. Let's look, see what he says. Look at verse 4. John, now we're going to hear about John. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now we actually have this man, John, appearing on the scene. Again, Mark is in a hurry. You're going to find over and over Mark using this word immediately throughout his narrative. Mark is on a hurry to tell a story, and he has no time either for the story of John's birth, the miraculous nature of how John came to be on this earth. He's getting straight to the role that John played in the purposes of God, and I don't want you to miss the significance in this. For over 300 years, the voice of God through his prophets had been silenced to his people. God had not spoken to his people for some 300 years to the prophets, and now John the Baptist appears on the scene. Now the voice of the Lord is speaking to his people, and he's doing it through this man, John. And here's John, this man who has a crucial role, a vital role to play in God's redemptive history. He was to prepare the people for Jesus. This is why John was here. He was to prepare God's people for God's son, to prepare God's people for Jesus. And as we look at Mark's story here, we're going to see some things about John really quickly that I want you to catch. He was a very peculiar man, a very peculiar guy. He had a very particular mission, and he had a very powerful message. Let's see how Mark kind of unpacks this. He was a very peculiar dude, John was. Look at verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair. And he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, I know I get teased a lot for wearing my toe shoes here all the time that look kind of funny. And for those of you that know me, I eat in a very particular way. Uh, some of you would probably imagine that locusts and wild honey, if they were organic, were on the menu at my house if you ever came for dinner. But it's not quite the case. John was a very, very particular dude. And what Mark is trying to actually do here isn't just to point out the peculiarity and the weirdness of John in particular. He's trying to bring up in the minds of his readers and in the knowledge of his readers a picture that had been spoken of all the way back in the prophet, Mal in the prophet Malachi about the prophet Elijah. Malachi had prophesied, the last prophet who had spoken to God's people some 300 years before had prophesied about another Elijah, a man very much like Elijah who was to come to prepare the way for the Lord. 
And if God's people were remembering that when this prophecy was being communicated here, they would, they would conjure up images of Elijah. And we know from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 1, that Elijah wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. Mark is trying to communicate here this Elijah figure, this one who was to prepare the way for the Lord, this one who was to make the path straight for the coming of the Lord. This was John the Baptist. This was him. And he was calling his people, just like Elijah had called God's people, to repentance. We'll see more about that in a minute. But he was a peculiar guy. And people wanted to see what was going on with this man. But he had a very particular mission. He had a very particular purpose. He was a herald. He was one, as the prophecy said, was a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, immediately, again, those who were there would have understood this. Those who would have heard this when Mark had written it and heard it read would have caught this image. But in this time, there there were heralds that would work in the company of the king. If you think back to the story of Joseph and Pharaoh, Pharaoh would have heralds riding in Joseph's chariot who would go before him that would announce as the chariot came through the people, bow the knee, letting them know that the Pharaoh was coming through. Heralds would go out in front of him on Joseph's chariot and say, now it's time to bow your knee. Hezekiah. We learned about Hezekiah and going through the Old Testament together. Hezekiah also had heralds. And those heralds would go before him throughout the land, declaring a great message for the king, saying, come to Jerusalem and keep the Passover. And what we're supposed to see here, what we're supposed to hear here as the people who first heard this would have heard, was that John the Baptist is one of the king's heralds. He's one of the king's messengers. He's a man with a very particular mission. He's on a royal mission from the king. He is one who is to go before the king, announcing the king is on his way. We need to get ready. The king is coming. He is on his way. And not only was he a particular dude with a very particular mission, but he had a very powerful message. This is really what Mark wants us to catch. He had a very powerful message. Look at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming, not just baptizing, but proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what's so strange about that? And what's so peculiar or powerful about that? Verse 5 actually makes it seem like a revival is taking place, right? Verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him, to John, and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So so here's the picture. You've got to see the picture. There's tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. We don't really know what he's talking about here in in this numbers and group, but there are thousands of people who are going out to the wilderness to see this very peculiar man who's eating locusts and wild honey, who's wearing camel's hair and and a leather belt, his hair probably going crazy, his beard probably weirder than mine. They're going out to the wilderness to hear him. They want to see him. They want to hear him. What in the world is it that he has to say that brings so many people out there that find them in this position of confessing their sins? As we look at what John had to say, and we'll go to Luke's account to see a little bit more about it, I want you to think of what would draw tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people now to the wilderness to hear a preacher? What kind of message would bring you out to hear that? What would take you there? Let's just imagine, as you think about what, what would cause you to go out and hear such a message and such a man if it's anything like what John was saying. Let's look at what John was saying. Again, Mark is not really clear about what it was that John was preaching, but Luke gives us the details. If you flip over to the book of Luke, chapter 3, I'll flip over there and join you. Luke, chapter 3, we get Luke's account of the ministry of John the Baptist. 
Luke chapter 3, we'll start in verse 7, but I'll I'll read you backwards just a little bit. Verse 3 in chapter 3 says, talking about John, that he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, right? We just read that in Mark. There's a similarity. And then he quotes these prophecies from Isaiah in the same way that Mark had. Then he gets to verse 7. And this is what it says. He said, therefore. So here's what he's proclaiming, right? He's baptizing and he's preaching. Now, Luke's going to tell us what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Here's what all the people are coming out to hear. You ready for this? He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Scan down to verse 17. Let's see the close of this. It says, his winnowing fork, talking about the one who was to come. His winnowing fork is in his hand. To clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I love verse 18. I love it. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. He, he went on with more, more encouragement. That's what exhortation means. With more encouragement and with more exhortation, he preached good news to the people. I mean, what's the essence of John's message? Again, we've got to put our first century ears on the best we can to understand what is so offensive about what John is saying and what is so powerful about what John is saying. The first thing he said to the Israelites who were coming from all around Jerusalem and Judea to hear him was, you're a brood of vipers. You're the offspring of a serpent. That's what a brood is. John's saying, look, immediately in their mind, Genesis 3 is popping up when he's saying this. You are either of God or of the serpent. And John is looking at these Israelites, covenant people by birth and nationality, and saying, you are the son of the serpent. You are in a bad place, born by nature, not of God, but in sin. You are in a bad place. Not even that. It gets worse. There's judgment coming for that. You're in a very precarious spot as the child of the serpent. You see it there in verse 17. There's a winnowing fork that's coming in the Lord's hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Some will be fruitful in the barn for eternity. Wheat is going to be gathered for eternity to be in the barn, but the chaff, and the chaff is going to be burned for eternity in unquenchable fire. You are in a bad place. And as the child of the serpent, it's not going to go well for you. But don't miss what else he said. He said there is a way of escape. And this is what they were coming for. There is a way of escape. There is repentance. There is acknowledgement and ownership of your sin. There is a way of escape. There is acknowledgement that you have broken your covenant with God, that you have sinned against God, that in and of yourself you do not deserve his forgiveness. There is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's why you're here. And then something really subtle in John's message that I absolutely love. It's in this this phrase that he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, you're here. You're you're, some sense, you're here. And you're listening to this, and we know from verse 5 that in response to this, they were confessing their sins. Do you see the grace of God at work even bringing you here? I mean, who warned you to flee? 
mean, who told you that this was going to happen? No, something about the way that God was already at work in their hearts that brought them out to hear John and to receive this message even shows them in and of itself that God's already at work. His grace is already going. John's message was highly scandalous and offensive. It still is. In and of yourself, you are in sin, period, born in sin. Your heart is dead to the things of God. And apart from the grace of God at work by his Holy Spirit, raising your dead heart to new life, opening up your heart to see the glory of God in the face of his son Jesus, there's going to be judgment for your state. And it's going to be unquenchable fire. But there is a way of escape. There is a way of escape. And it involves repentance, an ownership of your sin, a confession of your sin, a turning from your sin, and a turning to God. And John's saying, just the fact you're here, just the fact you're here should be an evidence to you that God is already at work in you. His grace is being extended to you. It's an amazing message, but it's highly, highly offensive. God, again, put your first century ears on. The Israelites from all of Jerusalem and Judea were coming out to hear John. Who were the Israelites? Who have we learned the Israelites are as we've been studying the entire Bible? I mean, they're God's covenant people, aren't they? Aren't aren't the men of the Israelites coming out to hear John the ones who have, have the mark of the covenant on them? Aren't they the ones that are circumcised? Aren't they the ones to whom the promises of God were given? These great prophecies were given? You see, to an Israelite in this time period, baptism had one significant meaning. It was one of the rites that a proselyte, a Gentile, who gave himself over to the Jewish faith, it's one of the rites that he had to go through. He had to go through a symbolic baptism, recognizing outwardly his need for inner cleansing, recognizing the sin in him that was a violation against God's covenant, and an outward example of that was being washed and cleansed from the sin that was within. That's what it meant for an Israelite to be baptized or to understand baptism. And here John is saying to all these Israelites who have come out, you need to repent of your sin and be baptized. You, with the mark of the covenant. You, the child of God's promise. You need to repent and be baptized. John's message was calling for the Israelites and the Gentiles to admit the fact that they were sinners, that they themselves had broken God's covenant. And they needed to acknowledge, they needed to acknowledge, you gotta get this, that their Jewishness was not gonna save them. That in the end, being an Israelite wasn't going to save them. There was no guarantee that they were going to be in the barn just because they were an Israelite. And at the same time, John was saying to the Gentiles that were around him in this, just being a Gentile is no guarantee that you're gonna spend eternity in unquenchable fire. This is why I love Luke's account so much. When Luke quotes those prophecies of Isaiah talking about John and talking about Jesus, he goes on to quote the next two verses from Isaiah that Mark leaves out. If you look at John's prophet, the prophecy here in Luke chapter three, it sounds just like Mark, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But Luke goes on and tells you the next two verses. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and every hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level. And listen to this, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John was looking around at these crowds that were gathering, predominantly of Israelites, but of Gentiles as well, and he was telling every single one that they had to own their sin. Every single one of them had to own their sin, had to confess their sin, and we see from verse five, the response to it is that many were doing that. 
But they need to not only confess their sin in repentance, they need to turn from that sin. They need to turn from that dependence upon their Jewishness, from, from their status, from their covenant, from their works of righteousness. They need to turn from whatever it is they were trusting to make themselves right with God and turn and give themselves wholly over to the mercy of God to forgive sinners who repent of their sin and place their faith in him. And this was so offensive, so offensive to the Israelites. But John had a peculiar or particular mission. His mission was to prepare God's people for the coming of the Savior. And the way that John was to prepare God's people for the coming of the Savior was to expose to them their need for forgiveness. And this is what John was doing. You can't understand and you can't appreciate the good news, that gospel message that we've been talking about. You can't understand it and appreciate it until you see your need for it. And this was the mission that John had in God's redemptive plan, to prepare God's people for the coming of Jesus. And you can't appreciate it until you understand your need for it. I mean, think about it. What draws crowds like that out today? Anybody running out to the wilderness to hear a weird-looking preacher tell them they're a son of the devil? Anybody running out to the wilderness in thousands and hundreds of thousands to hear some weird preacher tell them that unless they own their sin, that they're actually sinners, unless they own their sin, confess their sin, repent of their sin, they're going to spend eternity apart from God? Hundreds of thousands and tens of thousands run out to places to hear people tell them how great they are, how special they are, how blessed they can be. John's message was so highly offensive to this. You need to see your need for the forgiveness of God. You need to see your need for the grace of God. Let me ask you this. We don't need to go any further. What, what keeps you from repenting? Christian in the house, what, what keeps you from repenting? Do you see your need for forgiveness? If you find yourself failing to appreciate the gospel message, let me just ask you, do you see your need for forgiveness? Do you sense your need for the mercy of God and the grace of God? Are you confident then, if not in the grace of God, but confident then in your good deeds? The abandoned dogs you've rescued. A number of recycling bins in front of your house. A number of Sunday services that you've attended number of times that you may have read the Bible. Do you see your need for the forgiveness of God? What keeps you from repenting? Are you afraid of what people will think of you? I mean, if we're going to be really honest, I think that would be the number one thing that if we were to be really honest, people would say, I'm afraid of what people will think if I own this sin. If I own this reality about me, people's perceptions of me, people's opinions of me are going to change. They're going to see me differently, and and I'm comfortable with the image that I've cultivated. Because you know that's the number one job of people in this day and age is to cultivate a brand. We're all brand cultivators. All of you have a personal brand that you're about building and putting it out and projecting. That's the nature of the way life works in this culture now. And repentance and confession of sin exposes the true reality of who you are. Are you afraid of what people will think about you? Here's the thing. That fearful desire to keep yourself kind of protected 
is the one thing that's ultimately keeping you from tasting the sweetness of the mercy and the grace of God. If that's you this morning, if you resonate with that in any way, I really, I, I want you to hear Jesus saying to you in this that whatever it is that you're afraid of, whatever it is that you're afraid of exposing and being seen, I want you to hear him say to you that that thing, he is already taking it on himself in your place. Whatever that thing is, it's so shameful and so hideous and so offensive to you that you're so afraid of people knowing or afraid of even you think God knowing like he doesn't already know, I want you to hear Jesus saying he took that on his body for you on the cross. And not only that sin, but he took that shame. And whatever shame you're fearing, he took it himself, on himself for you. And now the love that his father has for him Ah, that same love he has for you now. You need to hear this and you need to know this. And God's particular purpose for John was to prepare God's people for the coming of Jesus. And to do that, God's people need to see their need, their need for what God is accomplishing through Jesus, their need for forgiveness. And let me say this as we get going to all of you in here who, who would consider yourself followers of, of Christ. Let me just ask you do, do you see or do you understand just how powerful a demonstration of the gospel our repentance is? It, let me see if I can find a better way to phrase it. Have you ever considered just how powerful to a watching world our lifestyle of repentance is in our relationships with one another? The, the world around us the one that is absolutely bent on encouraging us to cultivate this particular brand and identity for ourselves that can be accepted by the most number of people, this culture does not traffic in this kind of honesty. The currency of this particular culture is one of blame, of one of shifting, and one of lack of responsibility. It wasn't my fault. I didn't mean to do that. You're just misunderstanding me. Do you realize that when we practice a lifestyle, this kind of honesty and repentance with one another, a watching world can only stand back and be amazed at what they see? When we can look at one another with honesty, with grace, and say, you know what, for the last several days I've been harboring this particular thought or offense against you, and I need to ask you to forgive me? I see what I have done in displaying the disunity that has come because of this, and I need... I need to ask you to forgive me. Can you imagine what a demonstration of the grace of God in the relationships of people our lifestyle of repentance is to one another? And yet we miss out on the sweetness of forgiveness and grace in the midst of it because we're afraid of what people will think of us. Have you confessed your sin? Have you repented? Have you placed your faith wholly in the person and work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? And John's message is as true for us as it was for them in, in this time. But listen, he didn't just preach repentance. He didn't just preach repentance. He preached Jesus too. Don't miss this. He wasn't just bringing judgment upon the people. Listen, you're a son of the devil. You're gonna spend eternity apart from God. Either turn or burn. That wasn't John's message. He not only preached the need for repentance, he he preached Jesus. In verse seven, John said, and he preached. And this is what he said. This is Mark's account now. After me comes he who is mightier than I, 
the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, again, put your first century ears on. I didn't wear my, my Jesus sandals this morning. I, I thought to, but I couldn't really find them. But sandals in the first century were just leather bottoms that were attached to the foot by leather straps that went over the big toe and then around the ankle predominantly. And the roads weren't paved with asphalt. They were dirt. And when it was dry, it would get dusty. And when it was wet, it would get muddy. And when people would go into other people's homes, they would have servants, Gentile servants. This was not even the job of an Israelite servant. A Gentile servant was the one who would then untie the sandals of the guest and do the job of washing the caked mud and dirt and stuff that had gathered on their feet off so they could be clean entering the house. And here's John, the one who God had spoken of hundreds of years before, who had the mission from God himself to prepare the way for Jesus, to prepare God's people. John's saying, look, I'm not worthy to do the job that is dedicated to a Gentile servant of cleaning out the junk between other people's toes. This is who I am in relation to the ones to come. I'm not worthy of even that office. And in verse 8, what he says about Jesus is so amazing here in Mark. John says, verse 8, I have baptized you with water, right? Just an outward dramatization of your recognition of your inward need for this cleansing, your recognition of your breaking of God's covenant, your need for forgiveness and cleansing. I, I have baptized you with water. That can't ultimately change your heart. But this one that's coming, Jesus, this one that's coming, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Notice John didn't say he's coming and he's going to die on the cross in your sins and God's going to raise him from the dead three days later and he's alive. John didn't, John didn't particularly here preach this particular message of Jesus about the cross. He said Jesus is going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know why it's so great? Without the work of the Holy Spirit. Without the work of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus accomplished on the cross cannot be applied to your life. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to apply the work of Jesus to your heart. It is the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit that applies the accomplishments of Jesus in his life, in his death, and in his, re in his resurrection effectively to your heart. And as a consequence of Jesus living the life that you were created to live but you can't live because of your sin, and Jesus' death in your place, the death that you deserve because of your sin, and God accepting Jesus' sacrifice in your place for your sin and raising him from the grave and exalting him to his right hand, Jesus does exactly what, God, what John promised and exactly what God had promised in the Old Testament. He pours out his spirit on those who place their faith in him. The spirit of God opens up the eyes of people to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Jesus sends out the Holy Spirit as a life giver to those who are dead in their sin. He sends out the Holy Spirit to breathe life into dead hearts. He sends out the Holy Spirit to be the comforter to God's people. I mean, this is what Jesus says in, in John chapter 14. He will send the Holy Spirit. He will send the comforter. He will comfort you when you're downcast, comfort you when you're sorrowful. The very Spirit of God within you is there to encourage you and comfort you in the moments of your deepest darkness. And this Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done, is going to send this Holy Spirit to not only open up your heart to the glory of God and encourage you when your soul is sorrowful, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit as a sanctifier. And that Holy Spirit is going to continue to work in you. 
He's going to cause you to desire the things that glorify God. He's going to cause you to desire to want to follow the will of God and the word of God. And in that, he's going to conform you into the image of Jesus. He's going to work in you and with you to conform you into the character of Christ. And he's going to send this Holy Spirit. He's going to illuminate God's word. And it's the Holy Spirit that opens up God's word in a way that illuminates God's words for us to see what God is saying. And it's the Holy Spirit then who as he illuminates God's word and draws our heart into God's word that we would delight God's word and to surrender to God's word. It's the same Holy Spirit that will guide us into all of God's truth. That's what Jesus promised, John chapter 16. You can go read it for yourself. John's saying, here's the thing. This is, this is Jesus. You're not just dead in sin. There's one coming who's going to send the Spirit who will make you alive. You're not just dead in sin and deserving of wrath for all of eternity apart from God. There's a way of escape. There's a way of escape, and it comes in seeing this man Jesus for who he is and in repenting of your sin and turning to him. And you know what? He's going to give you the very thing you need to do that. He's going to give you his Holy Spirit. John, very strange dude. But God had a very particular purpose for him, and he was to prepare God's people for Jesus. And he does it by showing us our need for him. And he does it by showing us who Jesus is and what he's done. That's John's message. Jesus, Jesus will send the Holy Spirit. He will regenerate dead hearts and give us new hearts. He will miraculously bring to life where there is death. Not only that, but we will be walking in the light of God's truth and God's word where at one time we only loved darkness We will live now in the freedom of God's grace and freedom of God's love where before the work of the Holy Spirit, we were slaves to our sin. We were truly a brood of vipers. And as the Spirit does that, the Spirit will convict us of sin, point us to the cross, give us the faith we need day in and day out to trust and delight and be satisfied in the work of Jesus that he accomplished in our place, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And the Holy Spirit is gonna do that from this day forward to the day we meet Jesus face to face. This was John's message. And the people heard it. And God's grace was at work. In verse five, we see him confessing their sins. This was the purpose that God had for John. But you know what? So far, Jesus hadn't even shown up on the scene yet. It's just been John. Now now Jesus is going to show up on the scene. And we need to see what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene. Again, Mark's in a hurry. We don't get a lot of details here. He just jumps right in because he wants us to see what's happening. Verse 9. In these days, or in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, John called the people to a baptism of repentance. Right? Own their sin, confess their sin, turn from their sin, turn to God, be baptized, acknowledging their need for forgiveness, their, their need for this cleansing that only God could give. Now, why did Jesus have to get baptized? I mean, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know as we've talked about it, Jesus had no sin. I mean, there was nothing for Jesus to repent of. Why in the world would Jesus undergo John's baptism of repentance? Now, just to be really fair and very honest to the Bible here, notice that Mark has no problem with this. Mark spends no time trying to explain why Jesus had to do this. There was no problem for Mark. He makes no comment about it. But we have questions all the time. So what's the why, would, why would Jesus humble himself to undergo Mark's baptism of repentance when he had no sin to repent of? Matthew helps us out a little bit with this. 
in his account of this story. And Matthew says this. He kind of narrates Jesus and John the Baptist back and forth about this when John doesn't want to baptize Jesus. John recognizes who it is. Like, hey, you know, I don't want to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, John, permit it. Just permit it for this time. For in this way, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus, who, have no, who had no sin, undergo John's baptism for the repentance of sin? In humbling himself and undergoing this baptism, Jesus was publicly identifying himself with sinners like you and me. He was publicly identifying himself with sinners like you and me. And in that public identification, Jesus was demonstrating his willingness to be our substitute, to be our mediator. Jesus was publicly proclaiming in this, I will become a sinner in your place. Everyone who came out to hear John and everyone who was baptized knew that they were sinners. They knew they needed cleansing. They had repented of their sins. They had confessed their sins, and they were looking to God to provide them this cleansing and this forgiveness. And Luke says Jesus shows up on the scene, and John immediately responds, there is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. There is the perfect one in whom there is no sin, but Jesus in his humility, in his humility, he identifies with us, and he takes on the same symbol that each one of those people came out and took on in in baptism. And he did this to indicate that he was going to provide for them, that he was going to provide for you and me the forgiveness that we know we need. This is why Jesus humbled himself to undergo this baptism, though he had no sin. Why in the world does that matter? I mean, what difference does that actually make now? Listen, Jesus publicly identifying and demonstrating his willingness to be our mediator, to be our substitute, in this whole thing, just try and hear Jesus saying that I I was baptized with the baptism of sinners because I'm the one who takes away the sins of the world. The shameful things, those things you were just talking about that you're so fearful of actually being known, I, I take away those sins those shameful things, those humiliating things. Here's the deal. You, you trust me? You trust in me? You decide that my grace is greater than whatever you think you're getting from that sin or from protecting yourself with that thing. You, you trust that my grace is more satisfying than your sin. And you turn from that thing and you turn to me, I guarantee that I will take your sin for you. I guarantee that on the day that you stand before my Father, And your accuser is standing right there, ready to absolutely unload these things on you. I guarantee that my father will look at him and say, this one, there's no sin in him. There's no sin in her. I placed it on my son. What do you have to say about that now? Jesus was identifying with us and demonstrating his willingness to be our substitute, to take that sin upon himself in our place. Verse 10, Mark says that when he came up out of the water, after humbling himself to this baptism, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. 
with whom I am well pleased. Immediately, Mark's got no time for chit-chat. Immediately, three things happened. The heavens were torn open. I mean, just try and imagine that scene. The heavens were torn open. And Mark only uses that word one other time in his entire narrative of Jesus' life. And it was in the end when Jesus was on the cross and the Roman centurion looks at Jesus and confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And you remember what happens? The veil in the temple, the curtain in the temple that had separated God and the presence of God in the Holy of Holies from the people in the holy place. Mark uses the same word. It was torn from top to bottom in two. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry on this earth, at the announcement of Jesus and his ministry on the earth, in the blessing and empowerment of Jesus, as we'll see in his ministry on this earth, John uses this word to show the heavens were torn open and it is the accomplishment of our atonement. Heavens, curtain, torn open. And as the heavens are torn open, just try to imagine the scene. Mark says the spirit was descending on him like a dove. Language there is actually a little more intense. You could actually say, it's actually justifiable to actually say that The Spirit was descending into Jesus. Spirit of God visibly filling Jesus, empowering Jesus to fulfill his mission and his office here on earth as our mediator, as our substitute. And we'll see as we go through the story of Jesus that all Jesus does, he does in the power of the Spirit. Jesus preaches in the power and dependence of the Spirit. He'll do battle with our adversary in dependence upon and in the power of the Holy Spirit. He'll overcome our adversary and overcome temptation in dependence upon and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was equipped by his Father for the ministry he had. And before he served as our representative on that cross, he himself was equipped by God with this Holy Spirit. And so just ask yourself now, and we'll see it as this story plays out. We'll be coming back to these things over and over again. If Jesus was as dependent upon the Holy Spirit as he was, and he did all that he did in dependence on the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, how much more ought you and I be dependent upon the Holy Spirit? To ask yourself that. We'll come back to this more. I'm just planting that seed. Verse 11, a third thing happened. A voice came from heaven and said, you're my beloved son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, sure, on the surface, that would probably solidify for the majority of people, or at least you think it would, for the majority of people that were around to go, yeah, yeah, son of God. Voice from heaven, heaven's torn, spirit descending, God speaking, yeah, I get it, I get it. He's the son of God. Now we know from Matthew's account at the end of the story, when Jesus is raised from the earth and ascends to the right hand of God, he actually makes this great note that the disciples were there and some still doubted. So there's this capacity for even God to speak from the heavens and they're torn open and the spirit coming and him saying, that's my son, that's the son of God, for people who were there to go, eh. John could have set up some special effects somewhere. Somebody in a cavern or a cave yelling, it's an echo. Most probably understood exactly what was happening. There's another thing going on that I like to actually think about and, and, and wonder is, what did this pronouncement what did it mean for Jesus himself? And we always talk about what it meant for everybody who was there. Like it, it was a solidification of all that John had preached. It was solidifying Jesus to all the people there that he was the son of God. It was an amazing moment, but what did it actually mean to Jesus? 
I mean, Jesus is going to come up out of this water, as we'll see when we go through the story. And he's going to be led directly into an engagement with the devil. He's going to live the rest of his life here on this earth, on this mission, in a battle with the enemy in our place. A mission that will ultimately lead to his excruciating death on the cross for crimes and sins he did not commit. What did it mean for him as he steps up out of this water and gets ready to step into those last three years of mission to hear his dad say, you know what, I love you. Ah, that's my son. Listen to me, in you, oh man, in you I'm happy. In you I'm pleased. What did it mean for him, for the father to want him to know this as he gets ready to engage these final years of his mission here on earth? And dad, you know, if you've ever had that moment where you've wanted to communicate that to your sons, to your daughters, to your kids. Look, I, you're about to go into something. I love you. I love you. You make my heart happy. In his baptism, Jesus so identified with you as a sinner. You don't you get this? He so identified with you as a sinner. But when you trust in him, when you trust in him, not only are you forgiven of those sins because he took them on himself, not only is that shame washed away because he took that shame upon himself, but you are brought into an absolutely new relationship with the Father. And so that all that Jesus accomplished in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, all that was true for Jesus now becomes true for you. And so when you hear the Father look down at the Son and say, ah, I love you. In, in you, my heart delights. When you place your faith in the person and work of Jesus, and the Bible will say over and over and over that you are now hidden in Christ, you need to hear him speaking to you. He looks at you, and these words that he said to his son at this point in his life are, are so close to what we can all anticipate hearing on the day we stand before God. Well done, my good and faithful servant. In my son, I love you. My, my heart delights in you. Jesus did, just didn't accomplish what needed to be accomplished for you to be forgiven and leave it there. All the affection that the Father has for the Son, He now has for you. And so just let me ask you this now. Do you think that would make a difference in your life if you actually believed it? Do you think that would actually make a difference in your life today if you actually believed it? Jesus' humble submission to this baptism is, in a sense, his way of saying, listen, you trust in me. You place your faith, your trust, your hope, you, you put it in me. There's nothing I can't and won't take away. 
There's no sin, no shame so deep, so dark, so strong that I can't or won't take it away. You place your faith, your trust, your hope in me. It's gone. And here's the deal. It's not just gone, but all the Father's affection that he has for me is now to you. You get it all. The fullness of his delight in me he has for you. Once you taste that, once you taste that, nothing else ultimately matters. Nothing else really matters. Do you see your need? Do you see your need? What keeps you from repenting? What keeps you from turning to the free grace and mercy of God through his son Jesus to not only taste the forgiveness of sins and the freedom that comes from the shame and the condemnation and the guilt, what keeps you from tasting the full extent of the Father's affection for his son in your heart? What's keeping you? What's keeping you? Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I just, I just ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to do something miraculous this morning. And you would send your Holy Spirit to open up hearts that have never tasted of your goodness, never tasted of your affection, hearts that have been fearful of shame and fearful of condemnation. They would see your son Jesus taking all of that in their place for them. And they would place their faith, their trust, their hope, their hope for joy, their hope for eternity in him. And this morning, right here, right now, right now, we would taste the sheer and pure delight and affection that you have for your son and us in him. Lord, I ask this for Jesus' namesake, that he get all the glory. And we taste, we taste the reality of the joy that comes. Amen.